Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Joel Winter is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry. He also spends a fair amount of time in Boulder, Colorado. Much of his time is spent on a fascinating area known as pharmacogenomics. Dr. Winter, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. At the risk of being too simplistic, but also as a starting point, this science appears to want to help doctors better choose a medication or better choose a dose of a medication so that fewer errors are made. That's done by testing for a person's genetic makeup that affects drug metabolism. Give us, please, an overview of pharmacogenomics and why, in your words, do we need this science? It's a field that has to do with treatment response. In medicine, we treat different conditions. So in psychiatry, I'll treat depression or I'll treat schizophrenia. You can use different modalities, things like medications or hospitalization or maybe some types of talk therapy. And the idea behind pharmacogenomics is to use the genetic information to help predict treatment response. Either side effects, say for medication, there's certain genetic variants that may predict side effects, or maybe predicts people who are more or less likely to respond to a certain treatment. And I always differentiate it from things like diagnostic testing. So some people are familiar with that. They may have had some genetic diagnostic tests. A family member got tested for certain diseases. They either have the disease or don't have the disease. This has more to do with markers about how our medical treatments may or may not improve results. When a person takes a medication, when a person swallows a pill, a lot of things happen to that molecule before it gets in the brain. Is that basically what we're talking about here? What happens to it before it gets to its endpoint? That's one of the definitely one of the big players here. The way I explain it is, if I prescribe a medication, let's say paroxetine, which is also known as Paxil, tell patients, look, you don't just take it once and then it's in your system forever, right? You don't just take one pill and then you already always have the right dose. You have to take the pill each day. Well, the reason you take it each day is because there's a, a series of steps that break it down and excrete it from your body. Most of that's through the liver. Let's say I'm taking a paroxetine pill. It gets absorbed in my stomach and small intestine mostly. And then it goes through the circulation to get right into my liver right away. And my liver detoxifies it, breaks it down. What's left is circulated through the blood and ultimately gets to the brain where it exerts its effect. turns out that there are certain genes that code for enzymes that are mostly expressed in the liver that are responsible for that breakdown process. And one of the things we look at in pharmacogenomics are these genes. They're called P450 genes or P450 enzymes that break down these medications so that some people may break it down a lot faster in the liver because they have certain changes in that DNA and some people break it down much slower. We all know people who are much more sensitive to medications, and they may be breaking down medications a lot slower, and some people take a lot of medication to produce that same effect. Some of that variation may be due to these genetic variants that are mostly expressed in the liver. So if we get a picture of these genetic variants in advance, does that help us choose either the dose of a medication or perhaps a particular medication, one over the other? I think that's a great way to look at it. Medications go through different pathways. So it's not like we have one enzyme, say this P450 enzyme. We don't have one that breaks everything down. We have several, 16 or more. And certain drugs go through different pathways. 
And these pathways have to do with these enzymes and, and how they break it down. So you may be deficient in one enzyme, meaning you make enzyme that doesn't work very well, but the other one you might be just fine. So you might be able to take paroxetine without a problem, but if you take cytalopram and you may need very, very low levels because possibly the genetics that create the enzyme that breaks that mostly breaks down citalopram is non-functional. And so you would need much lower levels than someone else. So if someone is, and I want you to get to the definitions of what we call a rapid metabolizer and all those forms in just a moment, but it's not universal. If you're considered a rapid metabolizer, you're not a rapid metabolizer necessarily for every drug that's out there in the drugstore. Exactly. So you can be a rapid metabolizer for one enzyme, but a poor metabolizer for another. So you might take paroxetine and you might be a rapid metabolizer. You break it down really fast, but you might be a poor metabolizer for the citalopram. So some drugs you may need a much higher dose and some drugs you may need a much lower dose. Some of the differences in those genes to tell for each individual what that might be. What is the difference between this? an extensive metabolizer, rapid, slow, intermediate? What does this all mean? Back to this idea of the P450 enzymes, these genes in our, in our body code for these enzymes that are mostly expressed in the liver. They've got these funny names. One of them is, they're, they're usually called CYP, CYP is how we short it. So something like CYP1A2 or CYP2D6 or CYP2C19. Each one of them has different variants. For instance, my own, my own CYP2D6 for that one pathway, I have two enzymes that are mostly normal. They break down medications at a normal rate. When we put those together, we get what we call normal metabolism, or actually in the nomenclature, it's extensive metabolism is in the normal. However, some people, and this is particularly evident in African populations, have duplications of that gene, or they have more gene on their chromosome than, than one. And when they do, and it's an active gene, they would be considered an ultra-rapid metabolizer because they're making much more enzyme than, say, I would. For me, I've got this version that one for my mom, one for my dad, both of them are pretty normal, and so I've got kind of your normal amount of enzyme. However, somebody who has a duplication would get maybe two, three, four times the amount of that enzyme, and they're considered what's termed in the nomenclature ultra-rapid metabolizers. They break things down much faster. So you've got your extensive and your ultra-rapid. And then on the other side of the coin, people can have versions of a gene that produce very little functioning enzymes. So again, in the liver, that enzyme isn't really working. It may be, be there, but it's not working. It's not breaking down those medications. And if you get two versions of that, one from mom, one from dad, that are, that are not functional, then you're considered a poor metabolizer. So you have poor, extensive, which is normal, and ultra-rapid, which is breaking it down very quickly. And then in between the poor and extensive is the intermediate. That would be a situation where maybe mom gave you a normal enzyme, a normal gene that codes for enzyme, and dad gave you one that's, that doesn't work or vice versa. And in that scenario, you've got half the amount of enzyme, and they're considered intermediate metabolizer. One of the things that comes from this is that if somebody comes to a doctor and says, doctor, the 10 milligrams that you're giving me just isn't working, I need 20, I need 30, we can't automatically assume that the person is abusing the medication. They may be very legitimate in the fact that they have the duplications and they just have a larger, uh, shall we say, army of enzymes that are eating it up. It gives some gray area to the somewhat automatic presumption that the person must be using the medication for the wrong reason. 
probably the best example of that, Dr. Strauss, is codeine. Codeine is a painkiller, an opiate-based painkiller, but in its natural form, in the codeine form, it's not active. It doesn't exert its effect on the opioid receptors. However, when it gets converted to morphine, then that does exert an effect in your brain. And it does that by one of the P450 enzymes that I've been talking about called CYP2D6. And so it turns out that a good percentage of the population, to 8 to 12%, are poor metabolizers. So they're not breaking the codeine down into morphine. So when they're given codeine, they get very little analgesia. They're not feeling the pain relief. This is probably more recognized by our dentist colleagues than anybody because when they give codeine for tooth pain, there's a certain percentage that say, I'm just not getting any effect. Of course, the worry is, oh, they're pocketing the medication or they're doing something with it, but but there may be a good reason that they're really not getting that effect that you would expect them to. And the statistic is roughly one out of 10 people do not have the genetic ability to break it down. Again, is that a fair number? It's a fair number. Of course, if you look at different ethnicities, there's different allelic variances, we would say, or different versions of it. But in the but the American population, it's right around 10%. So Caucasian population, you're looking at 8 to 12%. It varies a little bit in other ethnic populations. Does the FDA require this type of data in the process of coming up to recommending a particular dose of a medication? The FDA doesn't come out in the field of psychiatry and say you should get testing for any particular medication. However, having said that, they put recommendations around the dosages. The best example I can think of is this medication Citalopram, also known as Celexa. What they say is that if you have that, again, this one of these P450 enzymes, the CYP2C19, just a particular enzyme, then the name is really not of too much significance, but in that one enzyme, if you're a poor metabolizer, if your mom gave you an inactive copy and your dad gave you an inactive copy, and you're a poor metabolizer, they suggest that you keep that maximum dose to 20 milligrams. And most people do go above that dose to 30 or 40 milligrams. And they actually put out some labeling to suggest that, well, keep at 20 milligrams if they're a poor 2C19 metabolizer. So the FDA is definitely putting out some discussion and, and communication regarding this. But there's really only one gene at this point that they recommend testing before you prescribe that medication, and that's carbamazepine in Asian populations. And, and, and if you have a certain variant that's more endemic in the Asian populations, you can get a really bad rash and a really bad reaction to carbamazepine. So that's the one recommendation that the FDA said before prescribing this medication, you can, should consider getting that as pharmacogenomic testing. When Prozac first came out, just to use this as an example, it came out in a 20 milligram dose. That was it for everybody. And we began to see that there were a lot of problems with that dose. Either it didn't work or it was too much. Now we have a 10 milligram dose, a 20 milligram dose, and recently a 60 milligram dose. I think that captures the spirit of what you're talking about, that in reality, the preliminary doses do not necessarily match clinical needs. couldn't agree more. And the goal of pharmacogenomics is to know that ahead of time. So we don't have to crank that dose to 30, 40 milligrams and have that patient having a lot of side effects because maybe they're a poor or intermediate metabolizer. And knowing that ahead of time can be very beneficial. Is this a once-in-a-lifetime test? Do you need to have it repeated? You do not. Any of the genes that you have are not going anywhere. Some people don't realize this, but every cell in your body that has a nucleus carries the same DNA. You know, there's a couple caveats, but probably not important. 
So all of that same DNA, so my cheek cells have the same exact DNA as my liver cells, which have the exact same DNA as my brain cells. It's just that certain genes get turned on in different tissues. And that process is very complicated, and we're learning more and more about it. But all of the same DNA is in every cell so that we can look at the cells in your cheek that are going to be the same your whole life, to answer your question, that they aren't going to change. In psychiatry over the years and in other, in other areas as well, there have been many fads. The question is, how accurate are these tests? Is the science up now to the point where we can use it with some reliability and validity? Yeah, I definitely believe that, and I use it in my clinical practice. I would suggest to you that certain genes have better validity, so that if you're looking at, say, paroxetine, which is one of those drugs, that antidepressant drug that I was talking about, and a person's CYP2D6 genotype, meaning are they a poor metabolizer or the ultra-rapid metabolizer, there's a high correlation between their genotype and their blood levels. That's where some of the, the FDA has some of this warning around these medications, dosage. And there's also other genes that can be fairly predictive of response and efficacy. Not all the studies come out and say exactly what we would like them to say, or don't. not just one gene that makes all this difference. But I can tell you that having chipping away and Knowing some of these genes can help in this process of getting patients better and, and targeting just a little bit better each time a person's medication. I couldn't agree with you more. This becomes probably the major focus of so much work when we deal with the treatment of psychiatric issues with medications is we go up a little bit, down a little bit, try a different medication. Why does a person have a side effect to drug A but not drug B? Sometimes it's all trial and error, and this can help us reduce a lot of that trial and error. Definitely. That's the goal. And like anything, the test is rarely one-to-one in science as we start to define better subpopulations. For instance, I can tell you this much, carbamazepine is an older drug. It's a great drug. But if you're one of those 8% of Chinese individuals who has a certain variant called HLA star 1502, I would not be inclined to put you on that medication at all because you may have a really bad reaction. Now, there's some people who are on that medication who don't have that bad reaction, but it helps us narrow in to say who shouldn't be on it and maybe who should be on it. And those can be very helpful things. A couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, there was a whole flurry of activity about people who can buy these types of tests over the counter without a doctor being involved. I worry about that type of information being out there for the untrained person. Is that still a problem? There are some direct-to-consumer tests. They do these, uh, I won't get into the technology unless you'd like to, but, but they do these big SNP. They look for different variants, known variants across the genome. So, you know, we all have 23 analogous pairs of chromosomes, and they look at SNPs every few hundred base pairs or so, which are little changes in the nucleotides. And some of those changes are associated with diseases and disease risk. However, it's very hard for many people to understand the statistics and all of the caveats that go into it. So it can be very dangerous to just throw that information out there and, and let it go. I don't know if you've heard about the Huntington story, uh, Huntington's disease story. In the 80s, they came up with a test for Huntington's disease. For people who don't know, Huntington's disease is a neurodegenerative disease that affects you. Typically, I think the mean age is in the high 40s. People have this choreiform movement, so they get these sort of dance-like movements. They have much difficulty controlling the movements, and it progresses to mood issues and dementia issues, and ultimately, 
people can't control their, their motor movement, often fatal. So people who have this in the family have often seen it happen. In the 80s, they, they found one of the markers. It, it happens to be that there's really one marker for this disorder there that we can track down. Started testing for this marker, but didn't really put an infrastructure around it. There weren't protocols or seeing a counselor or anything. They just tested people. And they had a rash of suicides because people who tested positive had seen their family go through this and decided to end their life, unfortunately. And what happened was they did put an infrastructure around this information that when you're tested, you see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you have the information accurately explained to you. Even though there's testing, it's not one-to-one. There's variance in when people get it. Some people get it in their age 70, and some people get it early on. And there's a whole knowledge base that's now disseminated with that information. And I think that's really a good way to look at testing, pharmacogenomic testing, is putting that knowledge base and putting the infrastructure around the testing is so important because you just throw around facts without the knowledge base can be misconstrued and, and used improperly. And so the goal is to use it with that appropriate infrastructure. What about doing this in very young children who may be very sick and need a lot of medications? It would seem that it would help project, predict, prevent inappropriate dosing problems, which are more complicated in these groups. Is there much work in using at the beginning and end of life uh, pharmacogenomic testing? Cincinnati Children's Hospital is one of the largest children's hospitals in North America. If a child is admitted to their psychiatric unit, my understanding is that the standard of care for them to be genotyped for certain P450 enzyme right away so that they get that ahead of time. They have that genetic information right there. Children are one of the big areas where people are interested in using them. My mentor at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. David Mrazek, who literally wrote the book, Psychiatric Pharmacogenomics, is a child psychiatrist. And really, a lot of the work he did with kids, he would use pharmacogenomic testing. So it's definitely being looked at, I think, in these vulnerable populations. The beauty of genetic testing is there's very little downside as far as it's going to hurt anybody. Specifically, if it's the knowledge is integrated in a reasonable fashion. And so uh, I have seen it used in these populations quite often. Dr. Joel Winner is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my absolute pleasure.